Thank you. That, that is a warm welcome. Uh, it's interesting to sit here in a chapel service and to not just be sitting here, but actually be up front speaking. During my years at West Virginia University, I may have been voted least likely to ever speak in a chapel service. And so uh, I'm a testament to uh, the kind of transformation that God can work in a life. This morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 1. The context is that Moses is recounting for the people how God brought them out of Egypt and then led them to a place called Horeb, which is Deuteronomy's word for Mount Sinai, where he gave them his law and then is about to bring them up into the promised land. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19 with these words. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came into the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we now ask that you will bless both the reading and the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, working by and through it, and in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I've been thinking about things of significance and doing things of significance, which is the kind of thing we think about when we are college students. How can I make my life count? How can I do something significant? And what I've discovered as I've thought about doing significant things is that nobody does anything significant without overcoming some serious obstacles and problems along the way. For example, uh, you don't land somebody on the moon without overcoming some serious problems or obstacles. Uh, you don't put somebody on Mars, as is being attempted now, without overcoming some serious challenges. You don't build a booming business without facing some problems. You don't break a world record without overcoming some real challenges. And the same is true in the Christian life. 
We are called to enter into the eternal rest that God has promised to us, but the ultimate vision and fulfillment of that rest is not something that we will enter into without having to face a number of problems along the way. What are the kinds of problems that we face as Christians on our way into God's promised land? Well, they're basically the same problems that everybody else faces. They're no different. I was trying to think back to my own years as a college student, and what were some of the problems that I was facing at that particular time? Maybe you share some of these in common. One of my major problems was my classes themselves. I was a finance student who wasn't particularly good at math, and so uh, I would find myself frequently wondering, God must hate me, and that's why I'm taking calculus right now. Uh, it, it, I, I hear, amen. So there were some, that was a significant problem that had to be overcome along the way. Uh, it might be, I found myself also facing the problem of some serious financial challenges, working multiple jobs, trying to keep my head above water, not sure what I would do when my car broke down, not if it broke down, and looking at some serious student loans on the other side of my education. I remember facing the problems of wondering who my spouse is going to be and if I'm ever going to find her while I'm still here in college. I remember facing the problem of some of my own besetting sins that I just never seemed to be able to make any progress against. Those were some of the problems that I faced during my college years, and I wonder if perhaps you face some of those kinds of problems yourself. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that we don't face problems or have to overcome obstacles on our way into the promised rest that God has for us. But what it does mean is that God has given us some great and precious promises to sustain us in the face of those problems as we make our way along the journey. In this particular passage, the people of Israel have been given some extraordinary promises by God. Namely, He's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, an amazing place where He's going to be their God and they're going to be His people. It's extraordinary what He's promised to do for them. But it doesn't come without problems. And the people of Israel discover in this passage what those problems look like. And for them, those problems come in the form of some giant people living in some heavily fortified cities. And the question that is presented to the people of Israel is, are you going to focus on God's promises or are you going to focus on the problems that are before you? When we fix our eyes on the problems, we discover ourselves becoming a people who are increasingly grumbly and complaining. When we fix our eyes on the problems in front of us, we find ourselves becoming increasingly negative, dispirited, depressed, and anxious. On the other hand, if we fix our eyes on the promises of God, we still have the problems to deal with, but now the problems are, are, are suddenly being shaped through a different perspective. We're seeing them through a different lens. The question for the people of Israel is, are they going to fix their eyes on the promises or on the problems? And I believe that's the question each of us should wrestle with as well, and I'll just give you a sneak preview of the ending. My encouragement is that you fix your eyes on the promises, not on the problems. 
So let's take a look at this under three headings. We're going to consider first the promises and then the problems, and we're going to close with Moses' final plea. So if you have your Bible, in verses 19 and uh, before that, he's recounting for them again the way that God led them out of Egypt into Horeb, where he's entered into a covenant with them to make them his people, and he's given them his law to show them how to live as his people, and then he brings them up to this place called Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern border of the promised land, from which they're going to make their assault on the, the Amorite people living in the land of Canaan, and possess all that God has promised. So we pick up there in verse 20. It says, and I said to you, Moses speaking, You've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. I want you to notice here first that God has promised them the land. He said, I'm giving this to you. It was promised to Abraham way before this, and it's can, that promise has continued to be confirmed, and now God says, I'm giving it to you right now. And yet at the same time, he says, go up and possess it. I think what's significant about this is that God's promises do not preclude our taking action, but God's promises motivate and encourage our action. God's promises establish our taking action. God says, I'm giving you this land, and now go up and take what I'm promising to you. Similarly, God has promised us in Romans chapter 8 that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That means we are going to be sanctified. We are going to be like Jesus. But that promise is not an encouragement for us to sit on our heels with regard to sanctification. That promise is intended to establish and motivate our active putting to death of the old and bringing forward of the new. God's promise that He will provide for all of our needs, but that's not an encouragement to sit on our heels while God puts food on our table. It's an encouragement and a motivation to actually do the things through which God provides for us according to our needs. He closes that verse by saying, do not fear or be dismayed. Why do you think He says that? Because they're going to be tempted to be afraid and dismayed, right? He says it for a reason. He knows what's going to happen to them when they go into the land and they see the people and they see the cities. They're going to be tempted to fear and be dismayed. And Moses says, don't do that. Fix your eyes on the promises. Don't fix your eyes on the problems. He continues down in verse 22 and says that all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up into uh, and into the cities that we'll come into. And the thing seemed good to me, Moses said. And so he picked 12 men from each tribe and he sent them up into the land. They scouted out and they return. And this is their report in verse 25. It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. That's the report. Namely, that everything God had promised and said was actually true. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a fruitful and productive land. It is a wonderful place to live. In fact, the Valley of Eshkol has its name because of a cluster of grapes that were so large, they had to tie them to a pole and carry them between two men. That's how good the land is. It's good. 
But looming in the minds of the people larger than the promises were the problems. And so let's talk about the problems. That's what we come to next. Verse 26, Moses says, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. He's given you this land where the fruit is so big, it takes two people to carry it. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything God has promised. He said, I'm giving it to you, and yet you would not go up. Moses is astonished. He's replaying the astonishment for this, the generation, the the children of the generation who had refused to go up. And he is reminding them of just how crazy it was for their parents not to go up and take this land that God was giving them. Verse 27, and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we, and the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. There was clearly more to the spies' report than just that the land was good. The spies also reported the fact that there do happen to be giants living in the land, and those giants happen to live in cities that are fortified and prepared with good defenses. And once the people see the problems, they cannot get their eyes back on the promise. They're overwhelmed by the problems that are before them. And it leads them to murmuring and grumbling and complaining against God in their tents. Because that's what happens when we fix our eyes on the problems and lose sight of the promises. They say, where are we going up? The the implication of the Hebrew here is, what kind of a place is this that God is taking us into? What kind of a God would bring us into a land like this? And they come to a particular conclusion. It's because the Lord hated us that he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. We know what God's up to. He hates us. He wants to kill us, and it wasn't good enough to kill us in the land of Egypt, but he went through all the trouble of bringing 10 plagues down upon the Egyptians, rescuing us out of that land, parting a sea so we could walk across on dry land, bringing us to a mountain where he gave us his law to show us how to live as his people when we get into the promised land, and brought us up here because he wants to kill us once we cross the border. We know what you're up to. It's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. And that's the kind of craziness that happens when we lose sight of God's promises and God's heart and we get our eyes fixed on the problems that are in front of us, whatever shape they might take. It literally makes us insane. These people are insane right now. What they're saying is crazy. If they stopped and listened to themselves, they would be like, we're crazy. But they didn't stop and listen to themselves. They just kept talking to themselves about the problem rather than reminding themselves about God's promise. This, brothers and sisters, I think is at the heart of our grumbling, our complaining, our murmuring, is this deep and underlying fear that maybe God doesn't love me. That we encounter problems and difficulties and hardships, and they take all different sorts and shapes as we go through life, but But what happens when we encounter those hardships and difficulties is that this fear that lurks deep in our hearts begins to rear its head and we begin to say to ourselves, maybe the reason why I'm going through this is because God doesn't actually love me after all. 
Maybe we go another step further and we say, not only does he not love me, but God actually actively hates me and is trying to ruin my life. That's what the people are wrestling with right here. But think about this. What more could God have done to show the people of Israel that he loved them? What more could he have done to show them that he loved them? They were a slave people. Even before that, he came to this idol worshiper named Abraham living in Ur and said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to make you a great nation. And your people are going to go into slavery for 400 years, but I'm going to bring them out so I can bring them into a good land and be their God and they're going to be my people. And God actually did that. And if you try to find a reason amongst the people of Israel of why he did that, you won't find one. It's contrary to reason that he chose to set his love on these people and to rescue them. And he did rescue them, and he brought them out. And he entered into a covenant with them. He didn't do that with any other people. They are a special chosen people. What more could he have done to demonstrate his love for them that they're now questioning it in the face of the problems that are right in front of them? Well, there was a little more that he could do. Because as we move on through the Old Testament and into the New, we see how God shows His love for His covenant people. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What more could God do to show His love? He did it. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us when we were still sinners. What's important about that, there are many things important about that. One of the things that's important about that is that the text explicitly says God did not send His Son to die for us when we were having our best day when we were most walking closely to Jesus, when we had our best prayer and quiet time, when we had a perfect record of attendance at chapel, that's not when God sent His Son to die for us. He sent His Son to die for us when we were yet sinners, when we were at our worst, when we were at active enmity with God, hating Him, not wanting anything to do with Him. He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross for us, to take our place so that we could be reconciled to Him. What's so important about that is that if God had sent His Son when we were having a good day and actively seeking Him, then we might be afraid when we're having a bad day that God doesn't love us anymore. But He set His love on you when you were at the bottom of the barrel, when you couldn't have gone any lower, when you were at rock bottom. He said, I love you, and let me show you how. I'm sending my son to rescue you from your pit of despair and sin and misery that you properly belong in, and I'm going to pull you out and give you a hope and a future. That's how he showed his love for us. Do you believe that God loved you at your worst? Do you think you're at your worst today? If you've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you're not at your worst. How much more can we be certain that God loves us today now that we've been reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ? And once you realize, once you experience love that you know you don't deserve, it'll change you. I'm a big fan of tennis. Any tennis players in the house? A few, the proud, I appreciate that. Well, for those of you who don't know, this last fall at the U.S. Open, there was an opportunity for history to be made. A man named Novak Djokovic, 
who is arguably the greatest player, and there's a lot of argument about it, but he's arguably the greatest tennis player to ever live. The only reason he wouldn't be considered the greatest player to ever live is because of two other players named Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. Yeah, all right, so we hear that. Well, all three of these guys have won 20 Grand Slams. Those are the biggest tennis tournaments that there are. They've all won 20, this is unbelievable. This US Open, Novak Djokovic had a chance to prove that he is the greatest tennis player ever by winning his 21st, putting him in the lead, and not only that, but being the first man to win the calendar Grand Slam since 1969. He would be arguably the greatest tennis player ever. But there's an underlying story. Novak Djokovic is not well-liked in the tennis world. You heard how people clapped when I mentioned Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, and that is representative. <laughs> that's representative of the whole tennis world's feelings about those two guys compared to Novak Djokovic. People don't like him. And, and over the years, you get the sense that Djokovic is not particularly excited about not being liked. He wants to be loved. And there's this sense that if he could prove that he is the greatest tennis player of all time, if he could have completed this calendar Grand Slam, then maybe, just maybe, the tennis world would love him. And so there was all kinds of pressure coming into this U.S. Open. He goes into the tournament. He makes his way all the way to the finals, which is just extraordinary. And in the finals, where he has the chance to prove he is the greatest and to earn the love of the masses, he has one of his worst matches. It's a train wreck, and the other guy's having a great day, and he just destroys Djokovic. And as they come to the end of the match, I mean, it's basically over, it just hasn't ended yet. Djokovic is sitting on the, the bench, and he's in despair, and the crowd in New York, which is notorious for hating him, begins to chant, Novak, 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 and he hears it and it breaks him. And he's sitting on this chair, and the camera's on him, and he covers his face with his towel because he's weeping. It absolutely breaks him. Here is a guy who's thinking somewhere deep inside, if I can just prove how great I am, that people will love me. And now in his worst moment, for the first time, the crowds start to chant his name. He loses the match, and afterwards in the post-match conference, he says, I may have lost the match today, but I've more than won. To experience the love of the fans like that, it touched my soul. And it did. Because that's what that kind of love does. It touches us at the core of our being. To know that we are loved, not at our best, but at our worst, it changes us. Do you know God's love that way? That when you were at your worst, he didn't just chant your name. He sent his only son to die for you, to reconcile you to himself. I encourage you to remember that love and to know in the face of your problems, it's not because God hates you. That's not the reason. And to remember the promises. The passage concludes with Moses' plea to the people. He says, don't be in dread or afraid of these people. The Lord your God goes before you. Now, let me just pause there. It's one thing to tell somebody not to be afraid or in dread of these people, but let's just be honest. They're giants. They're the descendants of the Anakim. I am pretty sure I sat next to an Anakim on a flight from Boston to Atlanta, and 
this guy was so big, somehow ended up in a middle seat. He was so big, he played line. He, he played on the line for the New England Patriots. Pretty sure he was from the Anakim. Just an enormous human being. If you told me, I want you to go up and take on a bunch of that guy. Go fight them. And by the way, they live in fortified cities, which are specifically designed to make it difficult for you to fight them. And once you do get past the walls, you actually have to face people like that guy. And you tell me to do that, and I'm not a fighter like the Israelites weren't fighters. They were slaves. They're just journeying through the desert. You can appreciate that they might be like, why should I not be afraid of this? And Moses tells them, and he tells us why we also ought not to be afraid. And the first reason is because the Lord is a fighter. He says, the Lord your God who goes before you, verse 30, will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God fought for you there in Egypt against the greatest army, arguably, at the time. He, he showed you his power. You didn't even do anything except run, and he carried you through that. You can be sure he's going to fight for you against these enemies too. He's already dealt with the most difficult. And brother and sister, let's ask ourselves, what more difficult problem are we going to face than the problem of sin, death, and health? There is no greater problem we're going to face, and God has already fought for us and defeated those enemies. There's nothing we're going to face where we can't have confidence in God's promise to give us victory. The second reason we need not fear is because God is a father. Verse 31, he talks about how in the wilderness you've seen how the Lord your God carries you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Like a father, God carried his people through the problems and through the trials and the obstacles that they were facing on the way to the promised land. And brother and sister, we can be sure that the same God who sent his son to die on the cross for us will carry us in the face of the difficulties and obstacles that are before us. Where are you going to fix your eyes today? Sure, you've got problems. They're real problems. Some of them seem insurmountable. But don't fix your eyes on them. That leads to grumbling, mumbling, complaining, a miserable life. Fix your eyes, rather, on the promises of God that were sealed through the giving of His Son on the cross. And therein find the courage and the strength to go forward following the God who's promised to fight for you and carry you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without testimony of your great love, but you demonstrated it in a way that was far beyond we could have asked or imagined in giving us Jesus. As we go back out from this place today into a world filled with problems and troubles and obstacles, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the promises, who you are and what you have committed yourself to do, that we might find courage to walk in faithful obedience to all of your good commands, that you might be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.